Hello, and welcome to episode three of Tell Me a Story, where we take poems, essays, and short stories from the Chill Filter Review, and we bring them to you audiobook style. I'm your host, Krister Axel. Today, our theme is creativity and hope. We are exploring the raw power of the human mind to both define the future and rediscover the past. Ingenuity has brought us to this point of advanced civilization, and ingenuity will need to be the thing that saves us from self-destruction, or something like that. Charlotte A. Wynne is a scientist by day, a writer by night, and a fan of fantasy and dystopian fiction. She's also the author of a published fantasy series, The Reaper's Lament. This was read by Christian Brew, and it's called What Lies in the Heart of a Reverie But Rapture. There have been many imaginings of what the end of the world would look like, and perhaps more crucially how humanity would respond. Picture a monstrous mass of metal that houses an entire city, saving those who originally boarded from the burning wreckage of a once verdant planet. For myself and countless others that form the seventh generation of the postmodern world, it is our birthplace. Our mechanical Goliath of a home is divided into three sections, upper, middle and lower tiers, with no human passage between. Children are taught that their level of residence quite literally denotes their societal rank and what is expected of them if we as a whole are to thrive. The lowest section works to power the middle section and the middle powers the top with the elite shouldering the self-proclaimed biggest burden. Not only must they power the bottom tier, but they have the crucial task of keeping our floating city from crashing into the smouldering ruins of our Tellurian ancestors' architecture. Those in the lowest section, called the bottom feeders by some, have the least of all. Their home is a dimly lit plain of poverty and malnourishment, the news shows them trudging wearily through the factories, ensuring that a steady stream of power is sent coursing upwards to those that reside above their heads. We, on the other hand, known often as the middlings, are undeniably more fortunate. We live in comparably spacious domiciles, and although we still have the responsibility of fueling the top tier we are able to do so in a considerably less laborious way. We have been blessed with the freedom and materials to craft self-sufficient machines to generate the power for us while we spend the rest of our time designing ways to further improve our quality of life. The elite, well, is anyone's guess how they do it. For we have never been privy to their working conditions. But it seems inevitable that they don't lift a finger to power the bottom tier. Not that they give them much to begin with. A necessary disparity to keep our collective home afloat, apparently, born of an unfortunate design flaw of a strained engineer facing the merciless ticking of the doomsday clock nearly two centuries ago. 
The injustice infuriated me, especially because my protests were always met with an indignant, well, it's always been like this. Growing up, my mother told me that it was natural to feel sad for the bottom feeders and wonder if there was more we could do to aid their plight. She also told me I'd grow out of it. As my dismay at the lower tier suffering only deepened, my mother's understanding turned to impatience and quickly became anger. She lamented, often nastily, about my ungratefulness for the life I had been given and, on some level, I could understand her point. We should be happy, for not only do we have all we need to survive, but the opportunity to prosper as well. Why then am I miserable? Is that not ungracious, greedy, an insult to the toil and sacrifice of those who hold me at this greatness? Only the elite can provide the lowest tier with sustenance. Who are we to deny them basic resources if we revolt and withhold power from the top? If we stop buying the food and the clothing that they have made for us, how will they be able to afford their own? They can't keep it for themselves any more than we can for the goods we make that are destined for above. The robotic peacekeepers make sure of that. Happiness, according to many Midlands, is to accept your station wholeheartedly and know that the suffering of the few is far outweighed by those who thrive. Knowing what goes on below is a blessing even, for never again will you take your own life for granted. A more drastic solution is to cast the other levels from your mind entirely. Watching the news, after all, isn't compulsory. Live in the grace of an unseen, almost godlike force who rewards your hard work not just with the basic amenities of survival, but with luxuries too. Those who obsess over things they cannot change grow sick, and we all knew where they ended up. Hidden below the bottom tier was a fourth, where those who cannot contribute to society, or refuse to, are left to rot. No one, not even the elite, are immune to such a sentence, and it is, without exception, a one-way trip. For a while, I tried to appease my mother with the hope that I would eventually appease myself. I let myself be distracted by the glitz of consumerism and ignored the fact that the media playing on our screens was regurgitated and recycled, clapping and cheering gleefully like the rest. I threw myself into my work, seeking the satisfaction that others enthused about. I buried thoughts of how so many seem not to care or notice that they've been conditioned to never step off the treadmill, for that would slow the waterfall of money tumbling onto the piles of gold upon which the elite have built their thrones. At least, I've always imagined they sit on thrones. I tried to be happy, but that was just it. It wasn't my happiness. I could only keep the thin veil of forced smiles intact for so long. Not even my mother's obvious elation at my sudden change of heart could keep it buried. I've spent many years working in virtual reality. The quality of the simulations we were able to produce was staggering. Every sense was heightened, just a fraction, not enough to make it seem unrealistic, but to capture that sense of euphoria that our real lives never could. We'd been given the specifications from above. 
The experience was to be a balm, a thrill, a world so captivating that the moment you resurfaced you were already longing to be back. For a price, you could stay in as long as you wanted, but eventually your body would remind you of its neglect, and that's how we'd make the money. One branch of this was loosely called Dream Tech, downloadable content for virtual reality simulators that allowed the user to lucid dream. It was the ultimate fantasy experience, not bound by a pre-programmed story, but limited only by your own imagination. I tested it a few times and awoke with tears on my cheeks. It was beautiful, breathtaking, achieving everything we had hoped for with elegant execution. Even knowing its addictive intent, my chest ached each time I resurfaced from the simulation, the bitter air of the real world washing back over me. It was the final crack in the veil. Secretly, I began crafting a version of the dream tech that would keep its user artificially alive. It was a huge task, but we already had the solutions for sustaining humans in a sealed craft where nothing could leave or enter. The air below was toxic, they said, and it was better if we were shut off from it entirely. I scaled it all down, scavenging parts and reagents, and soon had a semi-functioning prototype. I decided to test its functionality off the grid after a particularly trying day. Electricity had been scarce for nearly a month following a mass riot on the lower level that resulted in many dead or too injured to work, and as such... The energy for our tier had begun to dwindle. I'd been dragged to yet another vigil to show our solidarity for the bottom feeders, who had been the victims of a violent act of terror from a few unstable individuals, doing little more than using up more of our precious power supply to light the orbs that we held. The news gushed over our selfless support, no doubt perceived as nothing more than a disrespectful joke by the very people it was supposed to help. Retiring to my room as soon as I could leave, I hooked myself up to my prototype, eager to sink into its awaiting rapture. My paradise glitched and shorted out almost immediately and I looked in dismay at the fried remnants of the battery that I had apparently overloaded. If it was to be truly self-sustaining, it could not rely on the energy that we spent our lives producing. I thought I'd solved the issue. The human body produced plenty of electricity itself, which could be harnessed if you knew how. Apparently, I did not. Wretched tears pulled in my eyes, my fingers trembling with rage as they clutched the fractured battery. They had us, caged and bound, and they knew it. In blind desperation, I began searching for components to repair the battery's melted cells. I tore out cables, hacking through panels on the wall with furious abandon. But my rampage halted abruptly as I looked back to the sparking mess of the window I had just laid waste to. Broken wires dangling around its small aperture. When its iris was open... It showed the wreckage of Earth, but, understandably, many chose to keep it shut, activating simulations of beautiful vistas instead. That little portal into the smouldering remnants of our ancestors' world, the view that I had never once questioned, now flickered and pulsed, green and grey bleeding across its stuttering image. 
my heart pounding. I reached out and wrenched the second illusionary screen from the window. A small, strangled noise escaped from my throat. Stretching out endlessly before me was the cold void of space. Our condemned planet, nowhere to be seen. No wonder the elite had urged so fiercely that we keep our vessel entirely airtight. The outside air wasn't toxic. There was a complete absence of atmosphere altogether. My mind raced. It was impossible to think that I could be the only one to have discovered this. But the resultant rush of hope was dampened almost as soon as it formed. They likely had unearthed the lie, only to have their memory wiped from existence before they could raise the alarm. I had to work quickly. Fumbling around under my bed, I found the bundle of solar panels I had petulantly abandoned when it became clear I could not use the clinical artificial light of my room to charge the battery. I hooked it up to a little light bulb and thrust the panels against the pane of my newly exposed window. I all but had to swallow my shriek of joy as its filament spluttered to life and began emitting a soft blue hue. Pacing around my room for a few moments, I tried to gather myself, quivering with the gravity of what I'd discovered. First things first, I had to do the very thing I'd gone to strenuous precautions to avoid. I had to tell someone. Not just anyone. Someone who would be able to understand and recreate my invention if I was inevitably not around to do so anymore. I hurriedly wrote an email to my boss, a brilliantly intelligent man who had been delighted by the progress we had made on the Dream Tech. Our department, like all the other engineers, wrote their blueprints in code, lest any competing companies intercepted and stole their ideas. I can only hope he saw its potential. A few adjustments and the solar panels were wired, the machine whirring to life a few seconds later. Next... I had to wire myself in. The pads across my skull and temples were no problem. But I gripped my teeth as I jabbed clumsily at my arms, trying to seat thin tubes in my elusive veins. As their lumen siphoned my blood away into the heart of the dreamer console, I leaned against the wall beneath my window and, with trembling fingers, pressed the machine's illuminated launch command. My body tensed, tendons seizing and straining in my neck, but in an instant, it was gone. I ran my hands through sun-warmed grass, my soft gaze sweeping across the meadow's sea of wildflowers until it met the edge of the cliff and plunged away into a breathtaking valley that nestled against a sparkling sea. With a long, cleansing breath, I crossed my legs and basked in the glory of my surroundings as I waited for them to find me. And find me they did. One moment I was floating in my waking dream, the next my body was flooded with countless volts of electricity and unconsciousness claimed me instead. I didn't even have chance to open my eyes. When I did... I found myself in the desolate, oppressive gloom of what could only be the fourth forsaken tier. But what we had ignorantly presumed, thinking it a place of repulsion and exile, was not true. Those from the third level frequently came to smuggle us food through trap doors, cut into the floor where the gaze of the surveillance cameras could not reach. 
and they dutifully nurse my beaten body, healing wounds I never recall enduring. And I came to realise, in a swell of emotion, that my work was only just beginning. My prototype was destroyed. Of that, I was certain. But my memory of its construction was not. The bottom sections had more than enough materials to pull off what I had planned. If they tore down their very infrastructure and all of the power-generating machinery, which, of course, they agreed to without hesitation. The other issue was ensuring there was enough light, real light, to power a fleet of dreamer consoles, but enough hacking at the walls revealed windows that had been boarded up decades ago. It was incredible the speed they moved at, especially once they overwhelmed the robotic peacekeepers and harvested them for parts, as well as the surveillance cameras. We had dismantled their ability to spy and enforce their discipline on us, but it was naive to believe the elite had not accounted for such a revolution. But, as it stands, 32 hours after the bottom level stopped generating power, we are still yet to feel the wrath of the elite. Their supply of sustenance and power to us ceased almost instantly, as predicted. But this is a siege. They have no hope of winning. I hope that as I speak, my former boss is crafting more dreaming devices above my head, ordering about our team with his now justified abrasive urgency as they work at a frenetic pace for mass production. As the fragile balance between the realms is fractured, I'd like to think even those so enraptured by the fantasy of their lives will see it for what it truly is as it all comes crashing down around them and they'll take to the self-sustaining dreamers with rampant need, so desperate to continue the illusion. Here, all of the workers are already slumped against the walls, their tools and crafting machines idle, and, with any luck, the middle will mirror them before long. What then? Will the top tier wither and its inhabitants with it? Will it only be so long before they are forced to save themselves or die trying? Who knows? Maybe they've harvested the sun's energy all along and they'll survive just fine without us. It's not like they need the power to keep the city afloat. We'll just continue to drift through the infinite expanse of the universe. Either way, it's of little concern to us now. I never wished for death. Quite the opposite. But what we lived, and those on the tiers below us lived, was no life. It was an illusion. A construct made by someone else's choosing. Why not, then, live in an illusion of our own personal version of happiness? You might think it hollow, and I could not blame you. So did I once. But in your mind, no one has to suffer for someone else's pleasure. No one has to live in a quasi-state of happiness, all handed the same meagre ration from a dwindling well, and told never to dream of anything more lest you snatch the same pathetic joy, clutch to the breasts of those around you, and leave them with nothing. I broadcast this for both posterity and, I guess, as our farewell. If there are any other cities out there, drifting as we are, I hope that you might get your chance at freedom too. Perhaps you will hear Mayday signals from this same ship and I implore you not to heed them. If, like I have been told every day of my life, 
we are to accept whatever brings happiness for the majority, then we should be left to our fate. I have stayed on the periphery of the dreamscape long enough to record this message and ensure its transmission before I myself to ascend into my mind's rapture, past the regulations we would have once installed. My sense of self will dissolve, as will all knowledge of what has come to pass aboard this ship, and soon I won't even know that reality is not what truly exists around me. It is peaceful. It is beautiful. And I feel no sadness at all to know for a few moments more that we will float across the cosmos, our dreams bathed in the starlight that sustains them. The world exists only as we, the individual, perceive it. My definition of happiness is not yours. And while ours might have been able to coexist in harmony, someone else's would have just sapped the joy from our own. It is not something to resent. Not now. Learn from us. If you want true, lasting happiness, you must live it alone. Over and out. I want to apologize for posting this episode a little bit late. We were all set to put this episode out last Friday, which was the 11th of September, which figures into our final story. I live in southern Oregon in a little town called Ashland, and we had a wildfire come through town along with most of Oregon, Washington, and California. Last week was a special kind of hell for way too many families. We did all right. I still have a house, but needless to say, it made our lives pretty complicated for a little while. I'm still in shock. I haven't processed really any of it. We have thousands of families that are displaced, and I wish I could do more. I think like a lot of people right now, I'm worried about the future. I'm worried about what next summer is going to look like. But we have to keep up hope. We need to make as much noise as we can and hope that we can put somebody in office who takes these things seriously. We opened with a bit of a dark tale. I like that story from Charlotte Wynn because it gives us a taste of what the future might look like at the same time that it describes in some ways the life that we have already in terms of the tiers and the elites and and what the asynchronous distribution of power looks like in social terms. It sort of crystallizes the danger of turning to technology for all of our answers. At least that's what I see in it. Uh, this next story goes in the opposite direction, and we explore the past, the very distant past, and the roots of human evolution, and how music figures into that equation. Stephen R. Southard writes tales of fantasy, science fiction, and steampunk. He co-edited 20,000 Leagues, Remembered. This story is called Broken Flute Cave. Deep within Spirit Cave, 
the aged man prepared to play his final song. With tear-filled eyes, Hototo sat alone upon a rock in the room where the music played best. When joined by drummers and dancers, he had often made flute music for the tribe to rouse the braves for battle, to honor ancestors, to mourn losses and deaths, and to celebrate victories and births. Today, he would play music for himself. A fire burned on the cave floor before him, its undulating flame painting flickering red and orange pictures of light and shadow along the rough, textured walls. Due to the recent scarcity of wood in the area, only two narrow limbs fueled the fire, and they would burn out well before dawn. Still, they would be enough for the remainder of Hototo's life. He examined his two favorite flutes, one adorned with dark buffalo hide strips and carved with a moon and a tearful eye, cried mournful tunes. The other, with its bright, decorative hawk feathers and etched icons of the sun and dancers, played joyous and exuberant songs. Hototo chose the first flute and laid the second one down. As his masters had taught him many summers before, he positioned the wooden flute just at the right slant, both hands gripping it, one below the other. Hototo recalled his early struggles to play. He'd learned to hold the flute and to shape his lips the right way. There are as many wrong ways to play the flute as there are stars in the sky, his master had told him. But just as there's only one chief star, there's only one right way to play. When played wrong, the flute sounded no better than the breathing of the wind. But when played with skill, it produced a sound pleasing to the spirits. Now he struggled as he once had, but for a different reason. What Hototo had gained in knowledge and experience, he'd lost in energy and flexibility. It hurt to hold the flute steady. His finger joints caused him pain as he covered and uncovered the holes. His breath wheezed, and he didn't believe he could sustain the long notes. For this, his flute's final song, he began with clear, strong notes. They resonated through the cave, pure and sorrowful. As he played on, it was as if some of his youthful vigor had returned for one night. He blew steadily and long. His fingers moved in the old, familiar ways, without strain. His music swelled and filled the cavern. Its echoes resounded from every crevice and fissure. The flute's ethereal timbre evoked an intense melancholia, conveying a greater sorrow than he thought it possible to feel or play. The low tones sank him to deeper levels of despair, and when the pitch rose higher, it was as if the flute wailed from a broken heart. The music floated like a cloud, soared like an eagle, flowed like a river, and fell like the rain. A fresh rivulet of water dripped down a wall in front of him as if the cave itself wept. How strange, he thought, to play at his very best at the ending of his days. The fire's smoke began to shift in time to his music. It wafted and waved in the rhythm of his notes, a slow and sad dance of wispy vapors. Hototo had seen this only a handful of times before, and it gratified him. It meant a spirit had heard him playing and enjoyed it. He played a song of sorrow and despair, watching the smoke swim and sway in response. He'd never played this tune before, nor any like it. The six holes of the flute and the overtones he could create with his breath permitted many different tones 
and they could combine into songs without limit. Today he felt moved by something inside, something he hadn't felt before, a grieving for a death yet to come, the death of a thing he loved. Lost in thoughts, Hototo played at first to see the smoke shift and reform. It drifted and separated, snaking into wavy, shapeless patterns. By the time he noticed, the smoke was congealing into four distinct vertical columns, all arrayed before him against the opposite wall of the cave, no more than three arm lengths away. The quartet of smoke columns firmed and thickened, taking on defined contours and textures. Hototo could no longer see the cave wall through the gray patterns of smoke. The four forms became shapes he recognized. His eyes widened as he kept playing his music. At rare times during his life, he'd seen smoke behave this way, when the tribe had gathered in this cave for ceremonies of music and dance. During those events, a single spirit had come to give guidance to the tribe or to celebrate with them. But never, never before had Hototo seen four spirits arise at the same time, nor had the old ones of the tribe ever spoken of such a thing. Putting his flute down, he bowed his head in respect. Before him sat four kachinas, all looking at him and smiling. From their colors and the humans they resembled, he recognized them. The leftmost, the sun spirit, shone with an inner golden glow and appeared in the likeness of Hototo's long-dead father. Next in line, the moon spirit gave off a silver light and looked like his mother. The third smoke shape was the earth spirit, an all-brown incarnation of Kaliteka, the tribe's previous chief. Last in the row sat the spirit of music, formed of shifting and multiple translucent colors in the name of Kotori, the master who'd taught him to play the flute. Head down, Hototo forced himself to look at the cave floor. I'm honored by your presence, spirits. Please forgive an old man for not standing. The sun spirit smiled, then laughed aloud with the same booming guffaws Hototo had heard from his father years before. Look upon us, Hototo. We did not come to see you stand. It was your music that drew us here, my young student. The music spirit's kindly eyes held the same sparkle as his master's once had, though with the glow of something else. Admiration, perhaps. Meanwhile, the moon spirit had elbowed her golden partner as he laughed and showed him the same withering frown of disapproval Hototo remembered from his mother. She turned to him with mournful eyes. Why, my son, is your tune so sad? Do you feel sorrow because you have reached the ending of your days? He shook his head, anxious to dispel this idea. No, great spirit. My coming death does not sadden me. I expected it. It is long past due. He winced, waiting for a sudden chest pain to pass. No, I mourn the death of music in my tribe. He turned to the music spirit. I am sorry, master. No young braves wanted to learn the flute. Now the tribe has gone, seeking better hunting. I am too old, too weak, and could not leave with them. So the music now dies with me. In the silence that followed, the fire crackled as each of the kachinas looked at the others. Finally, the sun spirit began laughing again. The other spirits smiled, including the moon spirit, as if suddenly realizing the humor, the earth and the music spirits joined in the laughter. By now, the sun spirit shook from full-throated howls while golden tears dripped from both eyes. Hototo felt hurt and humiliated. Why do you laugh? 
Does my sorrow amuse you? The earth spirit made the hand sign for calm and silence. The spirit's gaiety died down, though the sun spirit tried to suppress occasional snickers. When he spoke, the earth spirit's voice rasped like the tread of a moccasin on pebbles. No, Hototo, we do not delight in your sadness. But when you say your music will die with you, he paused to chuckle. You do not see what we see. Hototo's left knee ached with stiffness, so he shifted its position. What do you see? To begin with, the mother moon said, her eyes full of sympathy, we see you dying. It is the way with all people, and your time arrives soon. But the sun will continue to rise and set, said the father's son. And many, many cycles of the moon will pass, said the moon spirit. You see the future? Hototo asked. The time yet to come? A very long time in the future, the sun spirit nodded and spread his hands. As many years as there are people in your tribe. Hototo's eyes widened. His tribe numbered over 700. The years will pass across this land, the earth spirit said, but your flutes will stay undisturbed in this cave, safe from animals, safe from weather. New tribes will settle, and much about your own tribe will be lost and forgotten. In that time, new people will come to the land. They will see your Pueblo dwellings and ask who built them. Those who live here will say, the Anasazi built them. Hototo gave a puzzled frown, for the word meant ancient enemy. Why will they say that? Due to the losses and errors of time, the moon mother said, your people will be known by the name others call you. That saddens me, Hototo said. There is more. The low, grinding voice of the earth spirit echoed through the stone chamber. A man from that time will explore this cave. The first visitor in all those hundreds of years, he will find your flutes. He will give a name to this cave. It has a name. It is called Spirit Cave. Hototo knew no other name for it. Only in this cave did the Kachinas ever appear. The music spirit shook his head. This explorer will not know that. Your flutes are different from those of other tribes, and he will think there are pieces missing. He will call this place Broken Flute Cave. He will try to play your flutes, but will not make music. Hototo nodded, only a sound like the breathing of the wind. Will this man find a master to teach him? The moon spirit shook her head, her silver hair swaying. There will be no master, no one who will know how to play flutes such as yours. Filled with despair, Hototo sighed. The knot in his stomach tightened. It will be as I fear, then. My tribe's music will be lost. And you laugh at this? Things will not end there. The sun spirit glowed more as he smiled. Many years after the explorer, another man, a man of music, will think about your flutes. He will wonder why two flutes would lie here, carefully preserved, yet broken in the same place, with the other pieces both missing. He will think that maybe your flutes are not broken, and will try to play them. Hototo chuckled. Without a master to teach him? He could not imagine that. Yes, the music spirit said, but he will be curious and determined. He pointed a bony finger at Hototo, a finger that rippled with changing rainbow colors, as you would be if you were in his place. Pondering this, Hototo realized he would indeed try to play a strange musical instrument if he found one, and would keep trying until he succeeded. 
he felt a dark cloud beginning to rise away from his thoughts. Will this man find out how to play? In time, yes, the music spirit said. He will chance upon the proper angle, the proper way to form his mouth and blow. It will surprise and please him when the tones sound. He will say, the flute itself taught him to play. Hototo managed a smile. Having a flute as a master seemed an odd way to learn. He had another thought. Will he play my songs? No, they will be lost, the moon spirit said, her eyes downcast. But these people will create their own songs. What is more, the music spirit's eyes gleamed, this man will teach many, many others to make and play flutes such as yours. They will call them Anasazi flutes. And knowledge of them will travel far and fast over the land. The brown earth spirit moved a hand from left to right across the world with the speed of an eagle. Now you see, Hototo, the sun spirit beamed, why we laughed when you said your music would die with you. It will lie dormant, but will one day spring forth, reborn from human curiosity and persistence, to sing to the world. Hototo let these words soak in. It pleased him to know his own flutes would play again in a far-off time. Will you spirits show yourselves to the flute players of these distant years to come? The Kachinas looked at each other as if deciding who should speak and what to say. In the full ripeness of time, the earth spirit said, many things are possible. I know one such thing. The multicolored music spirit looked down at himself. I could use a new human likeness. Astounded, Hototo looked at his former master. Did he truly mean another person would take the form of the music spirit? Until the next time we meet, Hototo. The sun spirit gave the hand sign for departure. It will be soon, within the realm of the spirits. Thank you for your music. All four spirits faded to smoke and drifted away. Hototo coughed, and the pain in his chest seized him again. Until the next time, Kachinas. Enemy flute, he thought. Broken flute cave. Despite the pain near his heart, he laughed aloud, and the sounds of his mirth echoed along the rocky corridor. After a happy sigh, he set down his sad music flute and picked up the other one. There's something that fascinates me about the concept of nostalgia for the future, you might say. And I think Broken Flute Cave really captures that. I've always said that time is an illusion. If you look at some of the most complex theories of the physical universe and the possibility that there are multiple dimensions, you end up very quickly realizing that time is, is a human construct and that all possible things exist at once. And if that's true, then we believe ourselves into the future. We create it with our concepts of what is possible. And above all, what we can do, what we can bring to that sense of progress. So I love that idea that even if we feel something is over for us as we lay dying, perhaps, that the best is actually yet to come in a collective sense and in a way that vindicates our own personal experience. I find that <laughs> to be a very attractive proposition. And as I mentioned earlier, I was hoping to release this episode last week on the 11th of September. That date has a lot of significance for 
all of us really, certainly the American citizens among us, but I think 9-11 is the world's tragedy. What I love about this next story is that hint of East Coast in the author's voice. This is a first for Tell Me a Story, where we had the author read her own story. She did a great job with it. Lisa Del Rosso teaches writing at NYU. Her first book, Confessions of an Accidental Professor, came out in 2018. And she's got a new book scheduled for release later this year. It's called You Are All a Part of Me. This is a short story that she wrote, and it's called In Beautiful Weather. Women in Manhattan have a tendency to fetishize firemen, their trucks and all the apparatus that goes with them, and I am no exception. One beautiful spring day, I decided to walk from 44th Street up to St. John the Divine at 110th and Amsterdam Avenue. On the corner at 66th and Amsterdam is Firehouse Ladder Company 40, Engine Company 35. The doors were open and I looked in as I walked by. The red trucks were there, all seemed calm. I began my cross at 66th and had only taken a few steps when I felt a foreign arm link through my right arm and heard a voice say, You look like you need help crossing the street, young lady. I turned and it was a fireman. A fireman had linked arms with me and was now escorting me up Amsterdam Avenue. I laughed and said, No, I don't. He said, Oh, yes, yes, you do. I think you do. He was not dressed in fireman garb. He had on jeans, a blue shirt, a white T-shirt, and work boots. The latter insignia was stitched onto the breast of his shirt and may have had a title, Lieutenant, but I am no longer sure. What I am sure of is he was one of the most beautiful men I have ever seen. Sandy brown hair, a bit long, unkempt, a mustache, bright blue eyes, tall, about 6'2", lean with a broad chest and muscular arms, and I know the latter because I felt through his shirt one of the arms he seemed unwilling to detach from mine. If I had to type him, he would be like an urban cowboy crossed with the eagerness of a puppy dog. So we walked and talked. How long have you been a fireman? All my life, never done anything else. Wow. What do you do? I'm a singer. Really? What kind of a singer? I train classically so I can sing anything. Sing for me! Right now? Now is as good a time as any. I don't even know you, but there are all these streets to cross and I think you might need help with all of them. Do you do this often? Do what often? Help women across the street? Never. I don't believe you. I mean it. Never. So why me? I told you. You looked like you needed help. I think you need help, I said. I could have told you that for nothing, he said. Listen, how far are you going? He still had not let go of my arm. Up to 110th Street. Mmm, not sure I can go up that far. I'd miss a call. But tell you what, come find me. You know where I am. You can sing for me. Okay. 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 So, I'll look for you in, say, two days. Okay. Two days, okay? In two days. And then he let go of my arm, turned, and walked back the way we had come. He turned again and yelled, Two days! I laughed. Two days later, I didn't go to find him. I can't tell you why. It could be that in the back of my mind, I thought that all firemen were on the make because they could be, or that he was just a flirtatious prankster, or that he frightened me a little. A year and a half went by. I never forgot him. He died in the Twin Towers on 9-11, along with 12 other men from Ladder Company 40, Engine Company 35. They sent in 13, and one came back. It was beautiful weather on that day, too. Because so many firemen were lost, there was all kinds of blame to go around afterwards. 
If they had had radios, the firemen would have been alerted to get out of the second tower. The communication left a lot to be desired. But I think of firemen rushing into burning buildings the way they rushed into the burning towers, and they don't know when a house or an apartment building is going to collapse, they just do it. And I believe that radios or not, the first tower down or not, they would have done the exact same thing on 9-11 in order to try and save people. It is what they do. In order to humanize the 3,000 people who died in the towers, the New York Times ran Portraits in Grief, which were mini-eulogies written by family members along with a photo. They did this for every single person. I read them every day for weeks and weeks and weeks. That is how I saw my fireman's photo. It was said that he liked to laugh and loved life. I think he had a wife, but no children. Having read them all, I no longer knew which was worse, being left with children to raise alone or being left entirely alone. Either way, I couldn't imagine what the families were going through, what his widow was going through. It has been over 13 years since then. Sometimes when I am crossing the street, I think of him. I think of him linking his arm to mine. I think of the look on his face when he spoke to me. I think of him happy. Today, crossing 96th Street, in cold, gray, and rainy weather, I thought of him, a man I knew for only a moment. I can't tell you why. Thanks for tuning in for episode three of Tell Me a Story. My name is Krister Axel. We'll be back in two weeks. I want to give a special thanks to our authors and voiceover talent. Be well and stay safe. Weightless heart